greatest enemy, death, for us. And so if Jesus, you know, it's just like Paul said, if the dead if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins. Um, and so basically, if the tomb was not empty, if Jesus did not raise uh, from the dead, then evil uh, is yet to be defeated. Let me just close with, with one more thing. Well, two more things. One thing I said earlier, but again, uh, God often uses evil and human suffering to draw people to himself. The example I gave earlier, people on their deathbed don't call for an atheist. They call for a priest or a preacher. They're looking for somebody to give them hope. There is no hope in atheism. Pantheism, evil is just an illusion. It's not real. So why even look for answers? Um, but one of, the, one of the things that has baffled man throughout the centuries and why in ancient times the Greeks and the Romans entertained the myths, mankind has always been looking for a God who is close enough to us to feel our pain to experience our suffering, uh, to really understand our problems, to see our problems through our eyes. So the myths often, their gods are so anthropomorphic. They, their gods look so much like humans. Okay? Problem is, we also need a god that is far enough away from man and far enough above man, uh, a god who transcends man to such a degree that our problems, though they, they might do us in, will never do him in. Okay, so we need a God who's close enough to us to feel our pain, but a God who is far enough above us to conquer our pain. Now, Francis Schaeffer pointed this out over and over again. The, the, Greek and Rome, the gods of the Greek and Roman myths were too small. They were close enough to feel our pain but they weren't big enough to escape our pain and the same problems that we had, lo and behold, did in the gods. That's why the gods were often fighting with each other and killing each other off and battering each other just like man was. They, they offered no solution to the problem. Um, in one sense, the god of pantheism is so far removed from our problems, um, so he's transcendent in that sense, but just, it's a, God is in it. So God doesn't really care about our problems. In Christianity, though, you have the transcendent God who is all-powerful, can solve our problems for us, can defeat our problems for us, yet this God loved us enough to become a man, and to walk with us, to talk with us, to break bread with us, to experience our pain, to suffer with us. You know, we have a God... He is so powerful, he can solve the ultimate problem for us, he can conquer death for us, yet he was so near to us that he actually experienced death. He actually he knows what it's like to be alone, he knows what it's like to be forsaken by his friends, he knows what it's like to be mocked, he knows what it's like to suffer. I mean, the problem of evil is not just a rational problem for God, because one member of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity, became a man and actually experienced insults and pain and suffering and being nailed to a cross and, and uh, being persecuted by the ones that he created. And um, um, and so when everything's said and done, I think, I think that uh, only the Christian God is both near enough to man 
and far enough above man uh, to be able to feel our pain, but also to be able to conquer our pain and our, our, our greatest enemy, death itself. And so uh, basically, I think when everything's said and done, when we really exhaust the problem of evil, uh, it ought to cause people to run into the arms um, of our crucified and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, rather than to run from Him. And uh, the story goes like this. I don't know if it's true or not, but that Aaron Burr, a leading political figure in early American history, that he was an atheist, but his wife was a Christian, and his little daughter was dying of an incurable disease, and she asked her, her father, who should I believe, you or mom? And he thought for a second, and he told his little girl, believe like your mom believes, because he realized if atheism is true, there is no hope. If the dead are not raised, and there's no life after death, and no God uh, to punish or reward us, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, as Paul says, for tomorrow we die. And Paul was quoting from Greek poets there who wrote about 600 years before he walked the earth. And so I think ultimately the problem of evil, William Lane Craig points this out in one of his books, No Easy Answers, published by Moody Press. Uh, in the end, the problem of evil, rightly understood, backfires into a very powerful argument for God's existence. C.S. Lewis admitted that, that he was an atheist, an atheist intellectual for years, and after he accepted Christ, he thought, you know, the number one reason why I didn't become a Christian was the problem of evil. And in reality, if I admit to the problem of evil and I see evil as being as obvious as it is, then it has to be a perversion of some ultimate standard of that which is good. In other words, there has to be something some ultimately worthy, ultimately good being that exists in order for evil to exist. And, uh, and so C.S. Lewis eventually figured out that the problem of evil ends up uh, becoming a very strong argument uh, for God's existence. Uh, if there is a crooked line, it implies the existence of a perfectly straight line and uh, in that sense, God is the perfectly straight line. God is the ultimately good being. And uh, um, his creation and its created state was totally good. And all corruption and perversion of it is what we call evil today and the effects of that. Uh, but that's about all I have. So if there's any uh, questions or any uh, comments anybody wants to make, uh, feel free to do so. The first one's usually the toughest. This is kind of a classic, and I've heard um, different people say different things about it. But it's the question of, um, with free will, does God know our decisions before we do? Yeah, does God, does God, since we have free will, does God foreknow what those decisions will be? Among what is what is usually called evangelical Christians, you know, the guys that claim to be born again, that claim they're trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, uh, they have a very high respect for the Bible. Most of them believe that it's God's word and totally without error. Uh, among evangelical scholars today, there there's two camps that would answer that question differently. The, the Clark Pinnock camp would say that God uh, cannot infallibly foreknow future free choices because then if he did foreknow them uh, they would be necessary and so they wouldn't be free. Uh, I disagree with that, Cam. By the way, you can still 
you can still believe God foreknows everything and agree with Pinnock on that point, uh, but what you would have to do is then throw free will, human free will, out the window. So some, there are some hyper-Calvinists who don't believe that man is, has free will at all. Most Calvinists believe that man has a, a certain amount of free will, but some, like Gordon Clark, uh, you decide something because God made you decide it. God foreordained you would decide it. Those are the real hyper-Calvinists. Whatever the case, I disagree with that camp. I agree with William Lane Craig, probably the leading Christian philosopher, who takes the classical uh, position that Aquinas took, that Augustine took, that I believe the Bible teaches. I believe Clark Pinnock is watering down the scriptures and perverting the scriptures to come up with his view. The classical position that William Lane Craig and that I myself take, that uh, J.P. Moreland take, is that God can, God does foreknow future free choices, but it doesn't make those choices uh, any less free. And in fact, even Aquinas draws a distinction. There's a category mistake. Uh, something, you, something could be contingent. A future free choice is contingent in the sense that you do have the freedom. For instance, your free choice to come into this room, at one time it was contingent because you had the freedom not to come into this room. Okay. So it could have gone either way. It was contingent. It wasn't necessary. You freely chose to come in this room. At the same time, God's knowledge of that future contingent free choice, could, he could still have necessary knowledge of what your decision would be at any given point in time. So, uh, so basically, I don't see it as a... Ca I, I see it basically as a category mistake the uh, direction that Pinnock and others are going in. William Lane Craig, uh, by the way, is has devoted uh, about one-fourth of his time to that question alone. And uh, he holds to, he reconciles divine sovereignty and human free will. He reconciles, reconciles God's uh, foreknowledge of future free events with those few, uh, free choices uh, through what is called Molinism. And I don't think we really have time to go through it, but uh, basically... Um, the free, we make free choices and we're often influenced by certain circumstances but in a Molinistic viewpoint at least in my own twist on Molinism would be that God foreknew what circumstances it would take to persuade people like Phil Fernandez to freely choose to accept Christ as his Savior. Um, and uh, some people, no matter what circumstances they're confronted with, will never choose to accept Christ. Uh, but God has predetermined that the circumstances would be, situations would come about that would persuade those who would freely accept Christ if given the chance, they will get that chance and will freely accept Christ. And but whatever the case, we get into a lot of, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's and things of that sort. But um, uh, but basically, I, I think that there there is a philosophical way to reconcile divine sovereignty and human free will. I can recommend a good book written for the layperson, but I believe it's still out of print, but it's called uh, The Only Wise God by William Lane Craig. Uh, the Only Wise God by William Lane Craig about two-thirds of the book deals with answering that philosophical dilemma. How could God uh, 
foreknow with infallibility and with necessity future free choices which are by definition contingent okay and it argues that they're contingent in a different sense that they're necessary and uh, and then in other words God throughout all eternity foreknew that I would freely decide to be here today if I had freely chosen not to be here today well then God would have foreknown that throughout all eternity um, and uh, I don't see any contradiction there and William Lane Craig is a lot smarter than me and is able to uh, to dot those I's and cross those T's and to argue with, with people like William Asker and other great minds today on that particular topic but it's a very good question certainly um, um, certainly something we're gonna, if, you, if you read heavy into theology uh, evangelical theology today you're going to read more and more about it as time goes on so it's it's, a, it's one of the hottest issues in evangelical circles there are good Christians that fall on both sides of those issues I just think the other side is in, can get themselves into some dangerous uh, water um, and, uh, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as like Gregory Boyd or uh, Clark Pinnock and, and uh, gentlemen of that sort and uh, um, Okay, uh, anybody else have any other questions? Uh, any comments? What do you say when someone asks you, um, like, if God gives us free will, then how come people who choose not to follow Christ are punished by going to hell? It's not kind of like holding a gun to your head and saying, come with me and stay here, but you stay here and I'm going to kill you. I mean, you don't really have a choice? No, it's really, it's a good question, but... I think that the way I would view that is that basically God loves us so much He gave us the freedom to separate ourselves from Him. And, and that's what, what hell is all about is the torment of finalizing that decision to be separated from God. So that throughout all eternity um, you're, you are never going to be in fellowship with God. Um, and, and you know, just do whatever you like to do. Most of all, if if it's a if it's a godly thing, if it's a you know you know, try doing that day in and day out. Like some guys like to go watch Mariners games at the Kingdom, and you know, and then the new stadium, Safeco Stadium, they'll be going there someday. But you go to every one of their home games, unless you're, you know, unless baseball's your god. After a while, it gets kind of boring. So. Um, uh, basically the Bible teaches an eternity separated from God the Bible describes that as eternal conscious torment okay um, and so man freely God loved us enough he gave us the freedom to choose to separate ourselves from him but God also loves us enough to provide a way through which we can once again be put placed into fellowship with him but because he's a God of love, he's not going to force that on us. So basically, because God loves us, he has provided one way for us to be saved. I, I believe you could show it's the only way, the only possible way for, for us to be saved because, uh, you know, God being totally just, he must judge and punish all sin before it can be forgiven. And since sin, by definition, is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, Therefore, 
the only worthy substitute sacrifice would have to be an ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice. So ba basically the sacrifice had to be God himself. Um, problem is God can't die if he just merely God. So the second person of the Trinity who is fully God had to add a human nature and to become a human so that he could die as the ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice for our sins. Um, and, and so basically, uh, because God loves us, he gives us the freedom to accept or reject the one source of forgiveness and salvation that mankind has. So it, it's not like there's three doors. You know, one is separation from eternal separation from God. We call it hell. And the other two doors are heaven, the eternal joy with God, and then door number three is eternal joy without God. There is no such thing as eternal joy without God. You know, and the guy, a guy might think, you know, he's got some temporary pleasure in his brand new car that he bought, and he might think that there is eternal pleasure without God, but eventually he's going to get tired of that car. And uh, so uh, the Bible teaches there, there is no door eternal joy apart from God. It's either eternal joy in fellowship with and in God's presence, or eternal torment separation from God and uh, and so uh, you know an atheist would, would would not want God to force him to accept Jesus he wants the freedom to reject Jesus but he also wants the freedom to reject Jesus and either cease to exist which the Bible teaches isn't going to happen or to reject Jesus and still experience eternal joy which the Bible says that there is no such reality um, and so, uh, so I don't see, uh, and, and, you know, I had some of my professors, now I'm not a, what I would call a Calvinist, I believe man really does have the freedom to accept or reject Christ, um, at the same time, uh, I disagree with one of my professors at Liberty University, uh, Dr. Mitchell, who said God holds no man at gunpoint. Well, if somebody holds you at gunpoint, he's threatening your physical well-being. He's threatening to take your physical life. I, th I, I raise my hand. I said, Doc, I disagree. I think God threatens us with worse than that. I think he does more than holding us at gunpoint. He dangles us over the flames of hell. So he threatens us with eternal spiritual death. But still, he gives us the freedom to say no to him and say yes. To so, so basically, God says, hey, look, Hell, you, you are hellbound right now. So I'm giving you a choice, and that choice is my son Jesus. And people are saying, well, I don't want your son Jesus, but I also don't want hell. But it, it's an either or. There is no third choice. And if God is the creator of this universe, then he defines what reality is. Not some uh, atheist or pantheist professor down the block. And, uh, but, uh, Okay, any other questions? And by the way, you know, the question, when I give you guys a response, and sometimes I'm still looking at the same look, that puzzled look that was there when you asked the question, if you ask a, if you ask a good question, you can ask a real good question in 30 seconds that might take, uh, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica worth of information to respond. And if you're asking good questions, um, sometimes it takes, uh, you know, volumes upon volumes to give an adequate answer and that's 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 what we're dealing with here um, how
how do you personally determine when you're talking with somebody if they're dealing with this question of evil on um, a personal emotional level or purely an intellectual level? Uh, yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, yeah. How do you know the, the, the distinction between somebody who's dealing with it purely as an emotion, on an emotional level, or purely as an, on the intellectual level? It, it's not always easy. And I think that, that that's why we Christians have to, sometimes we were so influenced by modernism that sometimes we ourselves picture ourselves as, as, as walking minds. You know, like um, all we are is thinking beings, period. When in actuality we have emotions, we have will, and so sometimes I think the most effective evangelism, by definition, is relationship evangelism. And uh, and I, I think we have three categories too, really, rather than just two. Some people, the problem of evil is just an emotional thing they're going through because of a, a loved one that's been hurt uh, or is suffering or, or died. Uh, sometimes it's merely an intellectual thing. But sometimes that, that, that merely intellectual problem, sometimes it's a real thing. It's a real issue with that person. And if you can give the person an, a, a sufficient answer, they might just turn to Christ. With others, it's just it's in, an intellectual smokescreen. It's one of the excuses they use for not coming to Christ. You give them a good answer, they'll just come up with some other objection. And, you know, I, I, I've dialogued with some people to the degree where they came up with maybe 50 questions. And after they admitted to me that I responded adequately to all 50 of them, eventually I saw question number one, objection number one, resurface, and then number two, and then number three. And after going through that over a period of three or four years, I realized, wait a minute, this is a bigger issue than that. Now, one guy, it wasn't because he was just playing games. Well, one guy, I, I was working with the guy, we were both former Marines, both working in law enforcement, and security, and he was driving. He was in a vehicle. Was driving. He dropped me off at another gate, and he and he told me uh, I, I had to go to a gate where I had to do security there. And uh, he was raising some objection to Christianity. And I told him, you know, I found out that this guy had married at a young age. He married somebody, and the lady left him a week for another guy. A week after he got married, and from then on, he would he would date ladies until they wanted to get married. Then he would break break off from them and, and date somebody else until they got serious and then he would break up and and uh, anyway I told this guy I, I said you know I've, I've come to the conclusion that um, um, you know you really don't have a problem with Jesus so much you have a problem with commitment everybody you ever committed your life to you know let you down and then I turned and I looked at this former marine and the guy's driving the car, a real professional guy, still carried his, his Marine Corps appearance into the law enforcement field, and he was driving straight ahead with no expression on his face with a tear rolling down his, his cheek. And I thought I was just, you know, shooting a breeze with him and, uh, you know, just shooting off the hip saying, yeah, I just think you got a problem with commitment. Everybody you ever loved, you know, this guy had, his father, when he was a young boy, his father left his mother for another woman, because of that, his wife, his mother had a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized. He, growing up in Chicago, for some reason, felt ashamed by that and did not visit her, and felt, you know, he just felt like everybody who was ever supposed to love him left him. And when I saw him weeping, you know, I just looked straight ahead and I felt for the guy. So, you know, I weeped a little too, but didn't say a word to him. I, 
I just felt the Holy Spirit was telling me, hey, keep your mouth shut, Fernandez. You said enough. And uh, I don't know. Maybe that's uh, what the Bible calls a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. I don't know. You know, I'm not one of these hyper-Pentecostals who claims to have it all figured out in that area. Sometimes God, you know, this mysterious, great God, does things that doesn't make Fernandez feel comfortable and he doesn't understand. But, but there's a time where I accidentally... Uh, stepped stepped into the the realm of really thinking about a person enough to care about them, but uh, but if we really care about people enough, well, one indication that it's just merely an intellectual thing is that if it's just constantly dealt with on the intellectual level, but if the person is there weeping because they're hurting, that's a real obvious indication. It's more of a personal thing. Sometimes on the personal issue, they don't like to talk about it, and so they permit for presented as an intellectual problem, but in actuality, you know, they need a friend. But I think we should, uh, even an obnoxious person who attacks Christianity only on the intellectual level and acts like he's intellectually superior to these Neanderthal believers, um, I think even those people, we ought to just someday buy them a cup of coffee and a donut and sit down with them and just love them just the way they are. And... If it's hard, it's hard for me, believe me, it's, I have a hard time doing that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the gap between my righteousness and Jesus' righteousness is greater than the gap between my righteousness and Adolf Hitler's righteousness, or lack thereof. Okay? So basically, the scent or the aroma for my attempts to live righteously smell more like the stench of Adolf Hitler's sins than they do smell like the ultimate infinite righteousness of God. So if the infinitely perfect God could love me just the way I was, then what right do I, an imperfect person, what right do I have not to love another imperfect person uh, because of their imperfections. If God was willing to forgive me, I ought to be willing to forgive others. And maybe if we just get to know people... Love... Cambridge Crusade, by the way, is set up in such a situation. It's just natural for you guys to form relationships, especially in a four-year college. Two years, you don't have as much time. But four years, you can actually befriend an atheist for three and a half years before you have to try to twist his arm and get him to the, the moment of decision. Okay? And granted, it'd be nice if you talk to a person on Monday, and on Monday he accepts Christ, most cases it's not like that we've got to plant seed and get to know. So I would just say, just, just get to know people, just love them, just care about them, and, uh, because we're talking things that are so intimate and so close to people that they just don't share it with people other than their friends. Uh, I think we're reaching a point in time, especially the shift from, the shift from modernism to postmodernism, to where I think it's almost impossible to, to lead a non-friend to Christ. Um, you know, unless, unless the guy's a corrections officer and um, there's an earthquake and, and he's on duty, there's an earthquake and he thinks all the prisoners are running away. And, um, and you know, those kinds of people going through a trial like that will say things like, what must I do to be saved? Uh, other than that, most people don't ask those kinds of questions. They're only thinking about, uh, do I have enough money for a burger and a cup of coffee? Or, uh, you know, can I pass this next exam? Or do I have enough money to make my rent payment? And so you've got to kind of get to know them. 
and um, become friend. If you become friends with him and really do form a good relationship, you know, if you really if you show him you care, yeah, you know, people are are un it's unlikely that a person's gonna in our day and age is gonna believe that God loves them uh, uh, unless they find out that you love them too. If God's people don't love them, why should you believe that God loves them? That's why it's so hard to lead a Mormon out of Mormonism. Because he's surrounded by a bunch of, pe bunch of people who do love him, or do love her, and then we ask them, hey, come on, come out of that environment where everybody loves you and become a Christian, and I can guarantee, almost guarantee, you'll get lost through the cracks. You can come to one of our big churches and nobody will even notice you're there. Um, so, he, you know, Jesus said... Uh, if you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know that you're my disciples. Well, we're not doing A, so the world doesn't know B. So uh, if we love one another and then get out there and love non-believers, spend time with them, we'll get to know them, get to figure them out, and find out where they're coming from, uh, maybe they will see the reality of, uh, of uh, the Lord uh, Jesus' love. But... Uh, Okay, any any other questions? Uh, I know I gotta run from here or Mike Carr wants me to meet up with uh in the the hub I think, three oh four D to talk with some graduate students and stuff. I don't know if it's a closed thing or an open thing or what it is, but uh but if there's no other questions I'll probably just run out to that. Uh Phil, yeah. You can't get me directly, and the reason why I'm not doing that is because I get uh, there's guys that basically want you know professors who are getting late in their careers and they've got a small teaching load and they just you know they'll do a hundred pages of email in a, a week and they want me you know all over the country they want me to get involved with that and if I did that I'd lose both my church and the institute so uh, so uh, basically I try to deflect stuff like that unfortunately email for me is usually a, just just slightly slower than snail mail so because uh, uh, sometimes a guy, I'll, a guy will walk up to me at church or at the institute and just hand me a piece of some email and say oh yeah I forgot to give this to you and I'll look and it's like you know August 7th is the date and um, and you know we're looking at November 20th or something so uh, so I apologize for that but main thing there is the, web, the website um, uh, that will at least keep you up to date on our events and eventually we're going to try to put everything I ever put in print every article, every chapter of every book on the internet and have it set up so if you've got the question, you punch in the question you get my 15 or 20 page response and then we're going to try to also get uh, you know have a, like a one sentence response if that's not good enough a paragraph response if that's not good enough love it or leave it here comes a 20 page response <laughs> and some cases if that's not good enough I wrote a book on it you'll get that too but uh, you know whatever but uh, um, so I'm not, I'm not fully into the computer age yet I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to wait until uh, I, I'm, on, I'm on Mac I'm on Mac too if that tells you anything so. but uh, okay any, any, any other questions at all or? Well, God bless you. Thanks for your patience. And, uh, if uh, one last commercial, if you wanted to buy, if you wanted some more of these, you know, free stuff, go ahead and take it. If you wanted to buy the books again, ten dollars for the pink book, 
$5 for the blue one if you want them both, $12. And you can just give the money to my missus and my wife Kathy right there. Uh, if you don't have the money on you and you want the books, just take them now. And if it takes you six months to get the money, you got our address. They're in the books. Just mail it to us.